wonderful Christmas gift for anyone who smokes because it says Merry Christmas and Happy Smoking 200 times. Yes, 10 packs of those better tasting Luckies, all done up for Christmas in a beautiful carton created just for Lucky Strike by the famous designer, Mr. Raymond Loy. It'll look so bright and colorful under your Christmas tree, and it's such a welcome gift to anyone who enjoys a good smoke. Because you know, smoking enjoyment is all a matter of taste. And the fact of the matter is, Luckies taste better. Cleaner, fresher, smoother. That's why you can't go wrong if you remember your friends with these colorful Christmas cartons of Lucky Strike. Toot, toot, toot. Be happy, go lucky for Christmas gifts this year. Traîne un gros sapin, Madame des paquets plein les mains, la joie dans les yeux des gamins, chacun de crier. Parmis ce soir, c'est Noël, Noël, Noël. C'est Noël et le monde est en joie. Il y a de la neige sur tous les toits et tous les sapins ont quitté les bois. Noël, Noël, Noël. C'est Noël et devant les cheminées, les chaussures se sont rassemblées, bouche béguettant les jouets. Noël, Noël, Noël. Et là-haut, tout là-haut, une étoile crève la toile, la toile bleue du ciel. C'est Noël, Noël, c'est Noël, Noël. À vous tous, joyeux Noël. Welcome, and thank you for listening to Film Jive's fourth annual Christmas special, A True American Tradition. My name is Krampus. And my name is Andy. Are you familiar with the legacy of Krampus, Andy? Isn't that why the one movie is called Christmas with the Cramps? <laughs> no, that's just everyone oh, ate really crank. bad Mexican food. It's, <laughs> it's called Christmas with the Cranks anyway. Why are there so many shitty Christmas movies? Nobody's willing to do anything real, really edgy with Christmas. I mean, Christmas Evil is like the greatest Christmas movie ever made. Well, it is. And then it was recently remade as Birdman. But the, the, the endings are completely different. No, theoretically, they're the same. I mean, is he re are they really flying at the end? Th but that, there's not even a question of that in Birdman. Yeah, there is. No! You're like the only person who argues this. I've even changed my mind on what that ending is. Mm -hmm. My whole theory that it was her disassociating herself from reality. Uh -huh. It's not even that. He's dead, and her whole performance is, oh, how dramatic. And your argument that Birdman's not a comedy? No, Birdman is a comedy, but It's that's... a flat-out comedy. It was entered in the comedy categories at the Golden Globes, which the filmmaker and the studios pick. Speaking of traditions, I don't know the, if you did this, but I did make uh, another batch of Hot Dr. Pepper. Ooh, I don't have any. I should. Which I am drinking at the moment. Oh, that makes me mad. I encourage listeners to do so as well before you continue to listen to this episode. So to celebrate Christmas this year, we decided to do something a bit different with Andy and I deciding to exchange gifts. We each purchased a DVD or Blu-ray with not much of a guiding criteria at all. I, I guess we were both acting under the assumption that we'd pick films that the other person had not seen. Yeah, and aren't we um, also going to... Like, we're going to open this up, and then we're going to watch them, and then talk about them, right? Yeah, in real time. Yeah. <laughs> this is like a long, long episode. Yeah. Uh, Andy, would you like to open your gift first? All right. And as you're doing that, I'll just preface this... Saying it's from Deep Discount DVD. And they send it in like plastic. This envelope. selection was incredibly difficult for me. And I wanted to try at the very least choose ah. something a bit more whimsical. Alright. Or try to keep in the spirit of Christmas. Oh, it's a wonderful life? No, no, it's not a Christmas film, but Uh-huh. Have you opened yours yet? No, I haven't. I mean you're no you're because you ordered this too for yourself. Oh yeah. Yeah, I opened that. Why does Deep Discount put it in such a shitty place? I don't know. Console? I don't know. 
get to get like scissors or something. My cat's looking at me. I woke him up. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sidewalk stories. I will say I really don't know what this is. So I chose this because it has is sort of a loose remake or successor to Charlie Chaplin's The Kid. Oh, okay. It is a silent film that was made in the late 80s. They rip on the artist on the back. It says 20 years before the artist. It was lost for like the last 25 years. Oh, that's And it just recently has had this big revival. And I've always wanted to see it. And I thought this was a good opportunity. Yeah, okay. That should be exciting. So now I'm going to, I'll open. Okay. I'm going to open the gift you got me. And I already have scissors I prepare for The Blood Trilogy <laughs> Actually funny enough Yeah Did you already have this? I have it, yeah. I considered buying the Herschel Gordon Lewis's Lost Films or whatever. Yeah, I don't have that one yet. No. I considered buying that at one point. But I thought, well then how do we choose what movie to watch. <laughs> well, I thought I would pick out 2000 Maniacs. Okay, all right. No, I'm excited about this. I've never, you've never watched... Seen a, you've never seen one of his films, right? I have not. That's why I picked it out, because I'm like, oh, he's never seen one. You've seen one. And we've talked about him before. Well, thank you. No problem. And it kind of shows the personality of the gift giver. It does. <laughs> Both of them do. Uh-huh. Some say Sidewalk Stories is like the kid and Color Me Blood Red. There is some violence in Sidewalk Stories. He kills the kid. Yeah. <laughs> he cuts out his tongue. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I guess at this time we're going to leave and go watch both Sidewalk Stories and 2000 Maniacs. And we'll return shortly to discuss them. <laughs> Two vacationing Illinois couples follow a detour down a backwoods road in a southern state. A wealthy playgirl from Pennsylvania drives down the same road accompanied by a schoolteacher. The cars arrive in the secluded hamlet of Pleasant Valley, where the residents are celebrating a centennial. Confederate flags are flying everywhere. After the centennial chairman insists the six northerners remain guests of the town, the townspeople begin killing each northerner as revenge for the town's destruction during the Civil War. Released in 1964, 2000 Maniacs is written and directed by Herschel Gordon Lewis and starring Playboy Playmate, Connie Mason, William Kerwin, Jeffrey Allen, Ben Moore, and Shelby Livingston. Now, you're much more familiar with Herschel Gordon Lewis than I am. Yeah. Would you be willing to provide some background information for people listening who aren't familiar with him? On old H.G. Lewis? Yeah. Let people know who he is because he's kind of a polarizing figure. Well, he's kind of an unusual guy, let's let's just say that. Obviously, film director, but before that he worked in advertising. And he kind of always worked in advertising. In marketing, he's kind of like one of the legends. He's even a professor at Roosevelt University teaching graduate courses on advertising and he wrote one of the uh the definitive textbooks on marketing, which I may have read in college actually, or read some kind of business book that he wrote, you know, an introduction or something yeah, for. He still he still writes mm-hmm. those from time to time, and he still does lectures on that. And uh, that's why he got into film was to make money. And when you look at his films, the best things about him are the posters and the names. I mean, Two Thousand Maniacs is one of the great film titles ever. And when you look at all of his other ones, Blood Feast, Scum of the Earth. Monster, a go-go, gruesome twosome, something weird, the girl, the body, and the pill, she-devils on wheels. I mean, they're all suburban roulette. They're just great titles all around. Um, That's one of the things that I think is most interesting about his films is that he is one of the very few directors that actually comes at his films completely from 
the money-making aspect of it. Like, he's not into interested in at all in making anything artistic. He's one of the few filmmakers that is honest about that. Okay, that's fair, that he's more honest about it. Yeah, okay, I can see that. I'm sure there are a lot of people that could look at him critically in that sense, but he claims that the marketing is more important than the film itself, which I think, especially today, is sadly true of most films that are made by big studios. Most of these blockbusters, the reason why they make so much money is because the studio sells it as a movie you can't miss. Well, and you know what? Something like Blood Feast, that's kind of how it was sold. It was kind of sold on see a woman get her tongue ripped out. Which is a great scene. Yeah, there were scenes around the block for the opening at the certain drive-in that they're in because Friedman and Christian Gordon Lewis tell the story in there. They would tell it much better than I do, of course. They were in, and uh, everyone, you know, they they would they watched the cars as they kind of left, and they're like, well, okay, well, that's the end of that. And the next night, even more people showed up for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, so they're right, and that was the other thing that he and Friedman did. They essentially created two different subgenres of films, the nudie cutie and the uh, the gore film. They invented the gore film. And what's funny is how that worked is they made nudie cuties. And they got to a point where other people started making nudie films and being a little more, say, um, explicit with their nudie films. And they're like, well, what's something else we can we can kind of tap into? And some one of them said, well, we'll just show extreme amounts of gore. And uh, that's what they started doing, starting with Blood Feast. And then other people got, into, got in and on it as well. There were quite a few mid-60s gore films that they didn't make, stuff like the Undertaker and his pals, which is essentially, I mean, a Herschel Warren Lewis film, just he has nothing to do with it, but it looks and feels just like a, a Lewis film. And after that, they kind of went back to some sex movies, and Jimmy the Boy Wonders, a kid's film, Girl the Body and the Pill has to do with birth control pills. So, I mean, anything that they could touch on that they can market, that's what they kind of gravitated towards. D- does his craft, though, ever grow? I would say this is 2000 Maniacs is the height of his his films on an artistic level. I, when I watched this again, like, I've seen this movie quite a few times, and I watched it again last night, and I was like, oh, wow, I kind of forgot that this one, this movie is a lot better made than his other ones. <laughs> well, yeah, just, I, I mean, I did start with Blood Feast, and, um, you know, I was familiar with Herschel Gordon Lewis, mainly through what you've told me about him, and then John Waters' great adoration for him as one of the two greatest filmmakers ever. And Blood Feast is a very rough movie. There was a definite progression between Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs in his craft, just how he composed an image. I mean, I would still say that the greatest handicap of both films is that he just doesn't have an eye for composition or he's just not interested in having an eye for composition. I think it's probably a, a bit of both. But even when that occurs, sometimes you get very unusual images that you would never see in films of this stature, I will say. No, I agree. There's some moments when you can tell it's just completely on accident that you're like, well, this is a pretty effective shot. Well, there are also the reverse of that, too. Where oh, yeah, where it's like someone's talking and the camera's focused on no one. It's pointing at no one. You know, the panning and the tilting and the yeah. zooms. Or oh, nothing's so ever smooth. No, no. It can be distracting. And it does add a quality to it, to it, to it though. It does, but I don't want to rant- romanticize it too much because it's not like it's above what student filmmakers do when they start making movies. It's the same no, thing. It it's the same no. mistake. So I don't want to make it sound like this guy's a genius for doing these things. It, in his case, it's just kind of born out of a, a neglect or a disinterest in, okay, I want to do that pan again and this time correct it. But that's just because what he's what his sure intentions are are not the same things. What's that? I'm sure he's never said that in his life. I want to correct that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, whenever I do encounter filmmakers like Herschel Garn Lewis, I am a bit torn on how I feel about them because I do feel craft is an important thing to to have and develop, and a total disregard for that is uh, it's conflicting for me. Craft is important if the film determines that it's important. For me, it's no different than music. I mean, you can have someone like Genesis or Led Zeppelin be incredibly talented musicians that have the highest quality production, 
but it, I don't think that means any more than, you know, who's going to be recording an album in, like, a day just to do it. Do you get what I'm trying to say? I mean... Yeah, but I still don't think that that correlates in the same way. Music is a different thing where, because that person that's recording that album in, in a day, they still may be, they may play that instrument just as well. And one thing I will say about Herschel Gordon-Lewis that I don't appreciate is that he is a somebody who has said on multiple accounts that he feels that anybody who views film as an artistic medium is an idiot. And I don't really respect that opinion because... Well, yeah, I know. I don't either, but that... He's he pigeonholing something because that's how he views it. And I almost right, wonder if that perspective limits how he works himself on his own film. Oh, sure. well, I'm sure it is. Yeah. He's completely looking at it as a money-making venture, and that's it. So that will also... Well, and, and I say I... I respect that opinion yeah, that, because that's that true also, of most movies that get right, made but anyway. that will also blind him to film as art. And I, and I find it curious in his case because he is somebody who comes from an academic background. I don't think coming from academics gives you a broader perspective on things, but I would just think that he would maybe view it, he would be more liberal in that how he viewed the medium. Yeah. And I do think there is a part of him that does want to feel validated because he does repeatedly state over and over again that they invented these genres of film. Oh, yeah, he's very proud of that. He even insinuates with Blood Feast to a certain extent that he, they were the first people to make a slasher film in a way. Mm -hmm. I feel like if he didn't actually care about those things, he wouldn't feel the, the urge to say them. Yeah, that's true. But I, what I like about his movies is that because he isn't concerned with the, the bigger picture and there is no artistic pretension, in the case of making horror films, they're allowed to be funny and they're allowed to be shot during the daytime. And he doesn't feel beholden to any kind of genre cliche or convention. So there's a lot of freedom in these films. And I think they play very comedically. And it's not in a so bad it's good kind of way. No, I mean, he's deliberately trying to be funny. Especially in the case of 2000 Maniacs, I actually think a lot of the performances are played comedically, and that's not because they're poor. I think they're actually quite charismatic. Well, the guy that's the mayor, that Jeffrey Allen, I don't necessarily think he's bad. I think he is pretty funny. Yeah, I agree. Some of these performers, maybe they would garner more respect if he did shoot them. In a more uh, <laughs> conventional way. <laughs> well, no, just uh, you know, he shoots a lot of dialogue sequences where in profiles. Yeah, yeah, he does, and it's very jarring. And I think sometimes that distracts from what the actor is actually doing. And I think if he framed them in a way that actually gave them more space to kind of deliver and kind of showcase what they were capable of doing, people may see that some of these actors are actually quite good given the the context of the movie that they're in. I actually think all of the the central maniacs in the film all have kind of a some of them are overselling it definitely. Yeah. But the worst actors are the actors that seem disinterested mm -hmm. to be there, which is some of the the northerner characters. But one question I wanted to ask because watching this and Blood Feast these films are all shot in Florida, and they do present a certain visual landscape that is rarely, I think, seen in films today, and a geog geographic area that I haven't seen in very many films. So I was curious if this film is considered to be one of the earliest horror films to establish the concept of regional horror. Oh, you know what? That's a good question. Um, I would say there's always probably been regional horror films to, to some extent. But, you know, I don't know. It could, it's possible that this is one of the earliest. Because I think the location of, it, of the South and yeah. the fact that it is Florida, even though I don't, the film's not supposed to take place in Florida. That's no, kind of I'm unidentified. Assuming, yeah, I'm assuming it's like one of the Carolinas, actually. But I think that is the location is a very important part of the story. Uh, it actually reminded me of Satan's Children. Well, yeah, because that's a, a regional horror film as well. Well, just the locales and that they both contain really amusing chase sequences. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, even though his home base is in Chicago, he did make most of his, especially horror films, in Florida. Gruesome Twosome's in Florida. And they do go with real regional things. I mean, even when KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, was a regional thing, he would have Colonel Sanders in his movies. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of scenes of people eating Kentucky Fried Chicken, even though that was a regional thing at the time. And out of his region, his home base region, which is kind of weird. So yeah, I mean, I, I would say this probably is an early example of regional horror. I don't know if this inspired other people to do the same thing. Or just inspiration in that, I guess they saw him make a film in Florida, and then people in Florida or wherever mm-hmm. also were like, oh, he did it, I can do it too. Kind of idea, which is, I think, very possible. I, I just think it's interesting because I feel like when a film is shot in Florida, that is a big deal in the sense that there's a certain sensibility that directly connects to Florida. The the neon lights, the cheapness, the tourism. These two movies, that stuff is completely absent. It just treats Florida like the locale that it is, but there's something very refreshing and specific about it. So that was something that I thought was... that does, in a way, set these films apart. Now, I know... A lot of people have written about this, but the film's depiction of Southern stereotypes is interesting. Yeah. Because I almost felt like at times, or at least initially when this started, he was making like a D.W. Griffith movie. (laughs) But then he omitted the most embedded aspect of Southern stereotypes, which is racism. Yeah, I mean, that. I know uh, on Wikipedia they talk, talk about this critic named Allison Graham that talks about this film's connection to the civil rights movement. Which I was going to ask you about. Did You've seen this so many times. Is that ever anything that you really thought about while watching it? You know, what What I think about is I was like, it would become a completely different movie had the Northerners been African-American and Jew. Absolutely. It would, it, it would it, have become a racist a film. film. Well, I don't know if it even would have became a racist film because I think it would become more of a commentary on civil rights, actually, more so than being a flat-out racist film. I think the closest that you can get into civil rights currently in the film is the fact that this little boy off-screen lynches a cat, and the cat's black. I don't know if that was any kind of commentary, or if it was just, that's what they did, you know? That's what they picked. You know, they found a black cat and used it, and it just so happens the scene was for him to be lynched. But don't you think establishing them ghosts of 1865 would sort of... I feel like that element, and then you bring black characters into the film, the ghosts would then have to directly make a comment on that fact. Yeah, I mean, you would almost have to do that, but at the same time... um... Like, I could see it being a civil rights film if those characters in Pleasant Valley were just people of the time. Yeah, but you could argue that in the South, even 100 years later, this is still a problem. And you could argue, like, is it just something about the people that are there. Oh, yeah, and I mean, really, the movie, I think more than a civil rights thing, it does, it plays upon, I think, people that have no previous experience in the South. It plays upon the fears and the stereotypes of what you assume Southern culture is because of history. Yeah. I mean, for a film that, like you and I both said, is plays a lot of the violence and everything for comedy, there is, I still think, some moments of it that aren't scary, because it's not well enough put together to be scary, but have, like, an eerie quality to it. Oh, well, uh, I think the most unusual thing about the death scenes... The reactions of the Southerners after they do them? Well, there's an admission of guilt, almost, yeah. from the ca- crowd in several d- of those death scenes. I mean, the best example is the Johnny Boy horse race killing. Mm-hmm. I... I- couldn't believe what I was watching. I had to like watch the scene like three or four times because I was like, am I, is there a shot I'm missing or something? What's happening here? Why are they suddenly so somber and look so regretful in this brief moment? And that was deliberate because of how the rest of that scene plays out. They, they like, they become aware that this bloodlust is wrong or it's not going to satisfy the urge that they're, that they desire. And then I think it happens again um, it happens during the first killing with the Shelby Livingston character where once her arm is cut off and 
dies, she dies, there's almost like a dissatisfaction or something. It's just kind of like the, all this aggression suddenly just kind of stops. And they're not, well, when they're the, almost the like not sure what to by, do. Yeah, when the one woman's crushed by the rock, you have like some of the people are like still have that kind of bloodlust in their eyes, but you can see pe- certain people in the background or in the foreground on some of the shots that it have that same expression that the earlier kills had. Yeah. I think one of the things that makes the um the crowds and the death scenes most effective is that apart from the main perpetrators none of the crowds of people really embody stereotypes. They just kind of look like everyday parade goers. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of makes it really unsettling because the you know the mayor, the two chairmen, uh the guy that dies in the or falls into the yeah, quicksand. Harper. Yeah, Harper and then the they're very broadly sketched yeah. in terms of their representation, whereas... Aren't all those people, though, uh, all the extras, they were really residents of the town that they shot in, wasn't it? Yes. And everyone was very accommodating towards them while making the movie? Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of interesting, too. Um, I actually think, even though I do kind of like the, the ghost aspect, I almost think it would have been just as effective, if not more so, had they not been ghosts. Yeah, well, it feels like a retroactive addition to the film. Well, I mean, it's a play on Brigadoon. And that would explain the looks of disappointment or whatever that they have after the kills. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before when we discussed William Castle, um, about the absence of showmanship in yeah. movies made today. I see Herschel Gordon-Lewis in a similar light. He doesn't aspire to make the kind of films that William Castle did, but films that have elaborate advertising campaigns and yeah. are largely constructed out of moments. Yes. I watch these movies now, and I feel like I missed out on an entire style of filmmaking. There is like an element of that where, can you imagine going to the drive-in to see 2000 Maniacs and whatever it was playing with? What that would have been like? It ends up feeling like duck soup rather than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, yeah. it's good to have both. young artist living in New York on the fringes of the financial district and its rushing crowds tries to make a living sketching passers-by on the street. He survives on his meager means and has found refuge in an abandoned building. One night, on the corner of a back alley, he finds a little girl whose father has just been murdered. While struggling to take care of her, he meets a young rich woman who immediately falls in love with this awkward pair. Released in 1989, Sidewalk Stories is written and directed by Charles Lane, starring Charles Lane, Darnell Williams, Sandy Wilson and Nicole Alegia should mention this film was shelved in the United States for nearly 25 years. It did apparently have a home video release on Japanese Laserdisc. And it did air on PBS. Yes. In like the early 90s. And it was a darling of the French throughout the last couple of decades. Uh, But because the distributor Island Pictures underwent a management or identity shift, the film was put on the shelf and sort of widely considered to be lost until this recent restoration. Andy, what did you make of Sidewalk Stories? In watching the film, I did think to myself, boy, I bet Roger Ebert loved this this movie. And so afterwards, I did look up his review, and boy, did he love this movie. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like, oh, this is, seems like his kind of movie. <laughs> and uh, And I was right. Whimsical, socially conscious. He didn't like the ending, though. That was his one complaint. He didn't like when the sound came in at the end. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the things I did think worked relatively well in the movie. I agree. That moment changes the movie from essentially a silent fairy tale into something very grim. Even the, uh, the body language and the expressions of the two main characters seemed very bleak. And hope for their relationship kind of flew out the window for me. And I think a lot of that is attributed to the uh, the dialogue coming in. Now, I will admit that the the performances 
of these quasi-homeless people was pretty poor. When they started delivering their dialogue, it sounded like actors acting like homeless people. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't let that really bother me. I didn't think that was that big of a deal. Because I thought the the idea worked enough to overcome that. Well, it also serves as... It basically validates the choice to make this a silent film for the large majority of its runtime. Yeah. I can understand how people view it as accusatory, but I don't... I view it as it's asking people to take notice. Yeah, when I said it was ham-fisted before we started recording, Mm -hmm. I didn't actually mean this scene. I actually meant the scene at the park uh, with the the cruel, wealthy women I thought was a little ham-fisted. And would have worked better cut out from the movie. When the guy asks them for money, the other homeless man, their reaction towards it. And then also the woman and her son, she was fine with with him picking on the little girl. But once the little girl did it to him, she kind of flipped out. And that's when all the the wealthy women went after the artist. And I the thought. rape whistle? Yeah, and the rape whistle. I thought that all oh, that was a little ham-fisted. And... Well, I'll agree. It's the one moment in the film where a certain type of person is really broadly portrayed. Yeah. Probably for the sake of humor, but it's not very effective. And I almost felt that that scene was a little confusing in terms of what its purpose was. Yeah. Well, especially when she did bring out the rape whistle. It almost seems to be a sequence that plays more, uh, it has to do more with a racial divide versus a economic divide. But there were were African-Americans in that wealthy group of women. Oh, were there? Yeah, there were at least two of them. Okay, I thought they were all white. Yeah. Because I think a lot of the movie actually does, it sets out to clearly illustrate that this is not a movie about racial tension, and it has to do with income inequality. Yeah. But the ending, I think the saddest thing about the ending now is with just society growing more cynical, people... I feel are less compassionate or will refuse to understand how someone could become homeless. Homeless, yeah. The ending is almost more potent in how it speaks to a situation, the situation today, Uh, because Mm now we've reached a point where a lot of people have to question: Is that person really homeless, or are they just scamming me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I think naturally comes from the kind of financial structure that the United States operates within where it's, it is about an individual and it is about every man for himself. This, that kind of mentality. Oh, and also we villainize the poor so much that Mm -hmm. in any regard, most people, I don't know about most, but, but a good portion of people will always look skeptically at anyone that's poor for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Like anyone chooses to be poor, you know, like that's a choice I've made. Yeah, and I wasn't, uh, I had no previous knowledge of homelessness as a, as a major social issue in the 80s, and specifically... Oh my god, that's where it became the big issue. Well, I, I, yeah, I did do some reading, and I guess one of the, the biggest shifts of that decade were... You've the, never seen They Live? Well, oh yeah, that's true, yeah. In the 80s, it's where the stereotype of a homeless person, which to that point was the middle-aged white man right mm-hmm. who was an alcoholic began to shift and it became much broader and younger people were becoming homeless entire families were becoming home homeless and the mentally disturbed were becoming homeless that, that that's because of Ronald Reagan he just completely shut off funding for the mental hospitals and essentially kicked them all out there are some theories that attribute the homeless specifically to drug use and mentally ill patients becoming released. And that's the only reason why this happened, which really had to do with income inequality and that the middle class began to decrease and housing became more difficult to afford because it was all going into luxury living. So you couldn't obtain government subsidized housing arrangements. No, any kind of homeless problem, I've always, you know, you know, I'm older than you. I kind of grew up in the 80s and mm-hmm. in a very anti-Reagan house. And that was very, you know, not that he created, obviously, because one person can't create it, but he definitely did nothing to help it and did a lot to keep it growing and becoming a problem. 
But now it seems like today it's just we've just accepted it as a part of the landscape of society. Yeah. I will say that another scene that kind of was the library scene. No librarian would kick someone out like that. Both scenes that you're mentioning are interesting because they're where the silent film motif drifts into the conventional aesthetic of a silent film. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like the majority of the movie, it it serves a thematic purpose rather than an aesthetic gimmick. Mm -hmm. But these two scenes that you're speaking about is where characters start to become the, the histrionics of performance within silent films become most apparent because I would say most of the performances throughout the film, they avoid going into that territory. The, the gesturing is not overly articulated. He does play some scenes and I think he does it quite well though. He does play some scenes with kind of like a silent physicality towards it. Like whenever he's knocked down, he does the silent knockdown with his, with the legs going in the air mm-hmm. once he hits the ground, like things like that. But I think that works well for his character. I don't think he's really trying to embody Chaplin. Demeanor alone, he reminded me more of Buster Keaton than he did Charlie Chaplin. Well, facially, I agree with Yeah, that. I mean, he isn't that athlete, but the story also doesn't require anything like that from him. For me, I found him to be fairly poised and never became too theatrically abroad. He does, the pantomime does call back to that style of acting, but I still think fairly subtle, and it's more in spirit of rather than an imitation of something. Do you see this as, like, a straight-up comedy? I mean, there's definitely humor in the film. When we were talking earlier, you kind of said you don't see it as much as Chaplin. Mm-hmm. And that, and I do kind of disagree because Chaplin's films, I do think, have like a lot of social commentary in his films, especially dealing with the undertrodden of society. Well, I, w- I was speaking more specifically about of the, the kid. kid. So I, I do think Chaplin's films are like comedy dramas, and I definitely think this is comedy drama. There's definitely comedy in it, enough where I can't say that there's not comedy in it. I mean, there's some scenes that that's all they are. It's just a, it's a sight gag. And the scene with... Uh, the people buying the little girl's pictures thinking that they're modern art. That's played purely for laughs. I agree with everything you're saying about Chaplin, but Chaplin's films may have a sense of realism, they have a social commentary, but I still think a lot of times narratively they're constructed around gags. This film isn't constructed around gags. Gags kind of, they find their way into the story. Yeah, but there are certain scenes that I think... The thing with the kidnappers and him taking the carriage... Yeah, I mean, that's the big set piece of the movie. That is essentially just put in. I mean, you could have eliminated that completely. It plays no bearings on anything else in that film. But I think where they're similar is that they both take these very uh, sort of tragic scenarios, but they choose not to wallow in that tragedy. Oh, right, right, yeah. But what I really admired, much in a way, not that dissimilar to a film like Do the Right Thing, it shows the ethnic diversity of a city like New York. Well, yeah, I agree with that. I especially think that with the kind of like opening panning shot of the different street performers, mm-hmm. just in the different traditions that they're even working in, you know, magic, uh, ventriloquism, street dancing and street drawing and so forth. I mean, it does kind of even that in that regard. Well, and, and also I think in a lot of movies that those things would just become atmospherics. But I mm-hmm. think he actually dedicates enough time to those people where they become, they, for a moment, they're given the movie. Yeah. Especially the interpretive dancer or whatever. Well, he was some of the, like, one of the funnier scenes was the one moment, I guess, where the businesswoman and he were having a moment. In the background, he's just dancing the entire time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, in addition, you know, the ethnic diversity, but also it relocates itself all over the city. So... The almost the aesthetics of the spaces that they're in are always changing. At times, it feels vintage New York. I would say, like the carriage chase, feels like something out of almost like a Harold Lloyd silent comedy. Um, and then at other times, it's very urban. Yeah. So it portrays the cultural diversity of a city like that very well, you know. And and also that scene just with the music constantly shifting style. Yeah. I mean, the music is 
brilliant. Took me a while to kind of realize how often it was shifting mm-hmm. in in what it was inspired by. I mean, there are portions where it feels like a Gershwin score. There are portions where it feels like the theme to Seinfeld. There are portions <laughs> where it feels like uh, it has some sort of Brazilian inspiration. I mean, it's just, it's all over the place, but it's it cohesively works. The other thing that's interesting about it being a New York film is that it doesn't showcase any famous landmarks. There's no Statue of Liberty. There's no Empire State Building. There's actually, there's never a city skyline shot at any point in the film. No, but it felt distinctly New York. Oh, absolutely, because he's in Greenwich Village, he's in uh, Washington Square, very distinct places, but it's, he doesn't exploit the city. Yeah. He treats it with like a very loving, but I think objective eye. Comparing it to another 80s movie about homeless, the homeless plight, they live. Which one do you think shows the plight of the the homeless person more realistically? Is there really a question? Let's they live. Absolutely. Yes. Uh huh. Well, I mean, they live. I mean, it does kind of show that there there is a not so invisible hand that's kind of making these people homeless. But but I don't know that that is the primary operative of they live. That's an element. And that yeah, that is an element. Yeah, I think the ending of sidewalks sidewalk story should have ended the same way. Where he gets to the roof of some news station and shoots out their uh, satellite. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to all these different people that we've seen earlier in the film and they're aliens. The lady working <laughs> the lady at Burger King. The rich businesswoman turns out yep. to be an alien herself. And she just starts blasting all those homeless people in the park. Yep. And then she turns to him and he puts his glasses on. <laughs> He should have had a moment, like, in the film where the woman, like, some woman hands him the money for drawing a picture, and he looks at the cash and it says, this is your god on it. Oh, the subtlety of John Carter. So before we wrap up this episode... Is that like a Christmas pun? Wrap up? Or put a bow around this episode? Before we heat up some Dr. Pepper and throw a lemon slice in it? We're going to play a a semi-Christmas-themed game. Basically, the title of the game is The Imitation Game. A lot of redundancy in that sentence. The Imitation Game, that's, that's the new Benedict Cumberbatch Yeah, which game. is where I got the title from, sort of, when I invented this really? game. Which is... Oh, you invented this game? Yeah. The basic concept is that each participant chooses a film and reads its plot synopsis. And the question is whether or not the person reading this plot synopsis is actually reading the correct plot synopsis and not that of another similar film. There's three rounds, and then if we're tied at the end of three rounds, there's a sudden death overtime. First two rounds are worth two points each, with the final round worth four points. This is intense. And because it is Christmas, all the films must have or contain some kind of winter climate. Something cold. If, say, I read a synopsis and you guess wrong, I don't get two points for that. Okay. I don't think that how that's how this works. Well, you're going to you're gonna be the points keeper anyway, okay? I don't think so. Wait, let me think about that. Should I still get, say, you read one and I say it's truth and it's a lie. Do you get two points? I didn't think about that. I don't know. Well, let's just keep it with, if you get the question right, you get yeah. two points. Let's just keep it that yeah, way. Let's yeah, let's not make it too confusing. I'll start round one. All right. 
A successful song and dance team become romantically involved with a sister act and team up to save the failing Vermont Inn of their former commanding general. This is Holiday Inn from 1942. I'm going to say that is in. Yeah, that's a lie. That's a false falsity. You are correct. It is actually isn't White, white Christmas? Christmas. I was yes. going to say, isn't that White Christmas? Two points for Andy. Okay, ready? Yep. A murderer is running loose through the streets of London, hunting down men dressed as Santa and killing them in them all in different and extremely violent fashions. Inspector Harris has to decide to take on the unenviable task of tracking down the psychopath, but he's going to have his work cut out for him. Only the suspicious reporter Giles seems to offer the inspector any promising leads. Is that don't open till Christmas? False. That's true. <sighs> that was true. Alright, round two, Andy has two points, I have zero. A worn-out wife and mother wishes that she'd never been born. Soon she is visited by a guardian angel who shows her what life would be like without Christmas, and that vision is as grim as anything you're ever likely to see in any holiday film. The woman learns her lesson, of course, but what a ride. This is One Magic Christmas. That's true. Damn it! (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Harry Dean Stanton plays the guardian angel. Oh, that's why you've seen it, I guess, right? Yep, in a duster. Ooh. He plays a harmonica. Are you sure this movie's awful? I mean, he's yeah, it is harmonica it's bad. and yeah, it's bad. Beginning with the haunting chords of Carol the Bells, this X-rated version of Dickens' A Christmas Carol with twists provides enjoyment of the highest caliber. Mary Stewart plays Carol Scrooge female tyrant of Biva Magazine and a sexual slave driver extraordinaire. Is this Passions of Carol? True. Yes, it is true. Okay, going into round three. This is for the win. There isn't going to be an overtime because uh, you have four points, I have two points. Mm-hmm. In the Antarctic... After an expedition with Dr. Davis McLaren, the sled dog trainer Jerry Shepard has to leave the polar base with his colleagues due to the proximity of a heavy snowstorm. He ties his dogs to be rescued, but the mission is called off and the dogs are left alone at their own fortune. For six months, Jerry tries to find a sponsor for a rescue mission. This is Snow Dogs. True. False. Dog. It's eight below. Oh my god. Paul Walker. Yeah, I know. Well, I have to get this right. Yeah, you do. A quartet of slimy degenerates, ruthless leader Stevie, antagonistic Joey, dim-witted Benji, and their depraved staff companion Agnes seek refuge in a remote snowbound cabin. After discovering a trio of innocent young women residing in said cabin, the perverted gang decide to abuse and terrorize the hapless and helpless ladies. Is this... Last, last how? <laughs> you kind of guess already. Uh, last house on Dead End Street. True. Really? Last house on the left? No, it's Winter Heat. It's a porno movie. You won. I uh, did win. I thought I thought it was so obvious that I was trying to come up with a title for it. I thought maybe you accidentally had said the title already. No, I was. Last House on Dead End Street is uh, like a kind of it, it is that is a real movie, but it's not Winter Heat. Well, do you want to play a fourth one? Because I have a fourth one already prepared just for the hell of it. All right, yeah, let's do it. A hardened convict and a young prisoner escape from a brutal prison in the middle of winter, only to find themselves on an out of control train with a female railway worker while being pursued by the vengeful head of security. This is Snowpiercer. Isn't that runaway train? Yeah, you're right, man. <laughs> I thought I could could maybe confuse you. <laughs> I was like, that's runaway train, though. Ready? Yep. A college professor leads a group of dim-witted students on an expedition to the woods to search for the legendary Yeti. Toaster murder, fake Native Americans, and a fluffy beast wearing run- running shoes attacks ensues. 
Is this Shriek of the Mutilated? Oh, I don't know, but that sounds amazing. The movie is really great, let me just say that. Uh... It's false. It's Shriek of the Mutilated. Ugh. He's kind of like a snow, like an abominable snowman kind of thing. Can't even win at my own damn game. No, I pretty much schooled you at that. I just got the snow dogs thing wrong. I knew I was going to dupe you with that one. Because you like to pretend you're some snow dogs expert. But I know you I've know never seen, I've never seen the, the movie. movie. I just know there's dogs and snow in it in Cuba. Gooding Jr., just to be clear. Not not the country. <laughs> that's, that's correct. The country of Cuba is not in the movie. I remember being a kid. Um, I got um the Psychotronic uh, video guide, the second Psychotronic book. I got that for Christmas in like 94, 95, whenever the book came out. Mm-hmm. And there's a picture of Shriek of the Mutilated in it, and I was like, oh my god, I have to see this movie. And it took me like decades to finally see it, because I would have saw it probably post-2004. I know that, definitely probably around 2010, maybe. Mm-hmm. So it was like 16 years in the making. I was probably, though, the only, like, 14-year-old to receive the Psychotronic Video Guide for Christmas, though. though. <laughs> I got it from my grandparents on my dad's side, because they asked me what I wanted, and I was like, I want the Psychotronic Video Guide! <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I do I do like what my dad told them, though. Don't look inside of it. <laughs> that was funny. He's like, when you get it, don't look inside of it. <laughs> So I'm assuming they never did. But man, I was super excited when I got it. I'd always get like weird things, so that's what I'd always want for like kind of like weird things if I got to a certain age. I know I got like Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory for Christmas from like one of my grandparents. I got Winter Heat. That's going to conclude this year's Christmas special. If you'd like to get in touch with Andy or I, you can do so by sending us an email to filmjive at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and Letterboxd. Andy, do you have any parting words for the listeners as 2014 comes to a close? No joke, I got some Black Emanuel movies for Christmas once for my parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, just... That's it? That's what you got to say? Pretty much, yeah. All right, well, thank you for listening to this year's Christmas special. Merry Christmas and keep on jiving. Keep on jiving.